Thank you for joining us. My name is Katie Heinley, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make it fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod. If you're the generous sort, you can be like Brian, Jody, Jerry, Garrett, Ben, Janet, and John, and support the podcast on Patreon with either a recurring or one-time donation. This helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that's in your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks in our Teespring store. Today, I'm interviewing Brendan Spearin. Brendan is the Aquatic Invasive Species Regional Coordinator for Fisheries and Oceans Canada, or DFO, in the Ontario and Prairie region. Since 2017, he has worked with partners in Western Canada on outreach, early detection, response, and management activities, including with federal fisheries officers and federal partners on the Canada Border Services Agency. His professional work has primarily focused on zebra and quagga mussels and their spread within Canada. Brennan worked on the Canadian Mossball response, participating in the Command Council on DFO's national team, and will also be joining us as a co-host on the Fisheries Podcast. All right, with that, welcome to the podcast and more the ways than one, Brendan. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. No, super excited to be here and uh, talk about myself a little bit before I get to interview all the amazing folks out there that are working in the fisheries world. Awesome. So one question I always like to start with is a little bit of background. So where did your interest in fisheries first begin? I, th- I think it's a tale that's been told many times on this podcast, and that is my dad took me fishing, and I absolutely loved it. Uh, I was very, very fortunate growing up in southern Ontario that my parents and my grandparents all loved camping, all loved uh, hunting, fishing, all that fun outdoor stuff. I spent a lot of time in the near north, so like in the North Bay, Sudbury area. Uh, when I was two years old, I peaked, though, and I caught a four-pound smallmouth bass my dad had mounted, and I've never ever come close to catching a fish that impressive again. And I will not pardon the pun, but I was absolutely hooked then. You know, it's such a great positive experience. And I look back and see the pictures and uh, I still still have that fish, you know, it's still they're still kicking around in the in the family house. And, you know, from there, like lots of kids growing up in the 90s, you know, I, I got to watch Jurassic Park. And I think I watched that movie 400 times, got hooked on science then. And from there, you know, I haven't looked back. I've always been interested in science, the environment, nature, and, you know, combine that with passions of angling and hunting, and it's easy to land in this field. Yeah, awesome. Can you talk a bit about what your career path has been up to your current position? Yeah, so I had someone describe my career and resume as idiosyncratic before, which is, I think, a a fun way of saying I've done a lot of kind of stuff, and it's weird I've landed where I am, but I... (laughs) I have an honors bachelor of science in earth science and physical geography. I originally wanted to be like a geomorphologist or geoscientist. And I kind of fell in love with biogeography and biology again in university. Uh, I'm also a huge map guy. I love spatial data. I love GIS work. And I ended up doing a postgraduate certificate after university in GIS. And I worked in precision agriculture for almost two years, um, working with programmers and farmers on crop yields, on DEMs, on hydrography. I have a place called Niagara Research attached to Niagara College. And that was a really cool opportunity because I got to work with folks who are, you know, programmers who are actually building the software that was used in research agriculture. And that was really neat. But then like every, you know, post-university graduate, I was looking for a better paying job, not one where I was a research associate, maybe something a little cooler. I had a professor send out a DFO or Fisheries Oceans Canada job advertisement. I applied for the job. I somehow got it. And from there, I started as a GIS technician. And from there, I kind of dove headfirst into a ton of fish and fish habitat stuff and projects at once. 
when I finally came up for air, my boss was kind of like, you should probably apply to be a fish habitat biologist. I think you could do it. And I was like, you know, I got this imposter syndrome thing already. Like I just started here. It's, it's 2014. Like it's a, it's a rough time to be working in this field right now. And uh, yeah, what the heck I'll do it. So I, I crammed my butt off. I bought a used copy of Scott and Crossman, which is like the freshwater fish Bible for Canada. And I read every single piece of fish habitat policy I get my hands on. And from there I landed the job, except it was in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is uh, 2,500 kilometers from Southern Ontario. It's of course the, the city north of North Dakota. If you follow the Red River, you'll eventually hit Winnipeg. And I convinced my girlfriend now wife that, you know, the whole Winnipeg thing, absolute exaggeration. It's fine. They've got a hockey team there now. You know, it's it's going to be amazing. It's a very warm place. That that was not true, but that's okay. <laughs> um, we're still here. You know, we've been here for almost uh, 10 years now. So it's really grown on us. We love the city. We love being out in the plains. It's an amazing place and lots of cool fish work happening. So when I first moved out to Winnipeg, I was doing um, some really cool work with grants and contributions. So working with non-government organizations in the prairies. Uh, there was this fund called the Recreational Fisheries Conservation Partnerships Participation Program. And its real goal was to restore, rebuild, and rehabilitate habitat across Canada. And that meant I got to work on like these really cool, small to medium-sized projects for habitat restoration. So things like taking uh, perch culverts and turning their bridges, enhancing spawning habitat, building spawning habitat, where it had been you know, knocked off over years of cumulative impacts, riparian health, riparian habitat restoration. I got to work with really cool names, um, you know, with size of organizations from big name players like Trial Limited Canada, all the way to smaller organizations like Friends of Fish Creek. And that was really cool because, you know, working with passionate people drives you so hard and so fast, and it makes you work harder to make sure they get the money that they need to start doing these cool projects that you want to see funded. Uh, it was really fulfilling work, and that eventually led into me working on a different GNC program, this time in the Arctic, called the Coastal Restoration Fund. And when you work in the Arctic, you know, you need to start adding some zeros onto your projects. Working in the Arctic is very expensive. Uh, a lot of these communities are very remote. If you want to, say, do habitat restoration up there, you need to find equipment and then get it there, probably by barge, which is expensive. And then you got to find an operator, which can be expensive. And so it's really interesting to, to go from those small to medium to then larger projects. So again, I went from like twenty to fifty thousand dollar projects to a million to three million dollar projects. But again, you know, the working with passionate people, that is always true, no matter who you're working with in the fisheries world. We got to do some really cool work with like the University of Waterloo on Arctic char and Dolly Varden restoration, as well as some interesting projects around permafrost slumping in the Arctic, which is a huge problem, where you've got, of course, melting permafrost, where the streams are becoming the land and vice versa. And so they were doing some neat work there to look at native plants that could help minimize that loss. And from there, I managed to get a job offer to work on the AIS team, which was formed in 2016. So I got to come in on the ground of a new program, which was really exciting. So what led you to, I guess, switch your interest to the aquatic invasive species work as opposed to continuing in that restoration field? Yeah, so being from Hamilton, Ontario, you know, that's on Lake Ontario. Growing up, you hear about sea lamprey, zebra mussel, quagga mussel, goldfish, the invasive carps. All these species have made headlines in my life at some point or another, and I've always been interested in invasive species, you know. What's really fun, too, is that invasive species kind of combine two of my favorite academic topics that I explored at Lang University. That being, you know, biogeography, ecosystem resilience, ecosystem resistance. 
And of course, invasive species management and invasive species science really draw on these things for things like risk assessments, predicting impacts, invasion likelihood, probability of success. You know, I think everyone's probably read uh, E.O. Wilson's Island Biogeography, and it's always been one of my favorite subjects, you know, and those uh, paradigms are really transferable from islands to fisheries, you know. Culverts create islands through disconnecting river networks. Glaciation created thousands and thousands of unconnected lakes that we have in the middle of the continent. And each one of those is its own unique island. And you can't talk about islands without talking about invasive species as well. You know, thinking theoretically about how a new species introduced could influence resili resilience and resistance. You know, pushing and pulling into new steady states. Shifting everything from biodiversity to biomass, predator-prey relationships. You know, what's not to like there? That's a really exciting and cool topic. And on, on that line too, you know, in the terrestrial world, there was a recent paper talking about how invasive ants had pushed lions into eating less zebras, which is just, who saw that one coming, you know? I mean, invasive species biologists did, but it's just, it's just such a cool topic. And it's unfortunate that it's cool in a way that's like, oh man, this really stinks for our native species and biodiversity. But you have to hand it to these guys, you know, they're, they're trying to live in the environments that we push them into. And that leads to the spatial aspect of invasive species, you know? When you're talking about invasive species, you're thinking, where is the invasion front? How is it moving? How is it mediated? Is it natural spread? Is it anthropogenic? What does the presence absence data tell us about that species and how it's using those pathways? You know, I think when you look at a map of uh, zero muscle invasions, you start to wonder how these data points are all connected. And in my opinion, it's inherently a spatial problem. You know, you look at road networks and you start seeing how launch points, calcium content, the quality of highway between water bodies, all these things are spatial properties and they drive those anthropogenic invasions in really cool and unique ways. And then you have a spread that starts defying things like life history and biology and have populations popping up hundreds of kilometers away from each other. You turn that spatial data and say, you know, what's happening here? How can we make sense of this? It, it is, it's funny that you were just talking about working with passionate people. And one of my favorite parts about the podcast is just listening to people talk about what they love to do. <laughs> So everyone like, everyone loves when they begin a platform and talk about what they love, right? And I've never met anyone working in this field that you couldn't just have blabber on for an hour. So yeah. I apologize if I, no, if I get a little bit longer great. here. <laughs> no, that's perfect. I was actually curious. So do you get to do any type of research uh, related work in your job? Or are you working more with like logistics of trying to prevent the aquatic invasive species spread? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So without getting uh, too much in the weeds in, in Canada, and I'm, I'm sure it's the United States as well, you know, uh, the federal government has jurisdiction as the states, as the provinces. And so figuring out, you know, who's doing what, when, where, and why can sometimes be difficult. And so I don't get to do a lot of things like early detection for zebra crocodile mussels. You know, I've, I've thrown the plankton nets, I've collected eDNA, but a lot of my work that I do on a day-to-day -day basis is working on kind of the the pathway issues, as well as working with those virtual partners to enable them to help prevent the spread of invasive species, right? So we do get to work with DFO science quite a bit. So DFO, for those that aren't aware, we're kind of like FWS and USGS and a little bit of NOAA all jammed together, but we have a really good separation between management and science. So I'm, I'm really lucky. I get to work with some really cool DFO scientists. So we work closely with our genetics lab that we have in Winnipeg. And so they're working on some really cool eDNA products and help with that early detection work and help the provinces with that eDNA work. As well, we've been working a little bit with um, some folks out of the Burlington DFO science team on overland transportation of AIS that we're, I'll talk about a little bit later, but um, we have a really cool project involving the national border. And, you know, people like to come to Canada to fish. This is a, a true fact. We have beautiful, big fish, beautiful, big lakes and rivers. And 
people will drive a very long way, sometimes with very dirty boats, and bring things we prefer to stay where they found them. So I guess somewhat related to that, I don't think I knew about this very much from your bio. So I was just kind of curious what the Canadian moss ball response was. Like, why did you need to respond to the moss balls? And just talk a little bit. Oh, man. Yeah. This was a a life-consuming event. I'm going to look back on in 20 years and be like, (laughs) wow, that really was not fun. Uh, So in March of 2021... So again, this is during the pandemic, you know, we got the stay at home orders, most places still. The USGS confirmed that a moss ball product, which are also called marimel balls or moss balls, they're actually a green algae, but you know how it is in the aquarium trade. Mm-hmm. The USGS confirmed that these moss ball products actually had live zebra mussels attached to them. So once this was confirmed by USGS and the message spread from the US into Canada, you know, you have state, provincial, federal AIS folks like literally running to pet stores and asking to see these moss balls because they're almost ubiquitous. You can buy these things online. You can buy them through Amazon, Walmart, Etsy, like all the major retailers sold these products. And as you can imagine, the idea of zebra mussels, one of the most invasive species in the history of North America, being found in pet stores across the entire continent was very concerning. And so this is kind of as as close as a code red as you can get in the AIS world, in my opinion. And by the time this whole episode was done, they found zebra mussel contaminated moss brawls in nine provinces, the Northwest Territories, and 46 U.S. states. So it's really interesting how we went from a single detection at one spot, and I believe it was uh, somewhere on the West Coast, to everyone across the country, both countries, the whole continent, looking for these things and finding them. So this is an interesting example of kind of, not even a novel pathway, because this has actually happened before, but... It's just something that people found. And then when they started looking, they found it, which is really common in the AIS world. Sometimes you have invaders that aren't actually like on the surface yet. People aren't aware of them until they start looking, they find them. Mm -hmm. So this really got the U.S. states, the U.S. federal government, the Canadian federal government, Canadian provinces, all working really, really hard and really, really fast. It was a very fast evolving situation. You know, we wanted to figure out which retailers had these products. Where were they coming from? Are these mussels alive and viable? What do we want people to do that have these things? Like, do we want them to throw them out? Do we want them to put them in the freezer? Do we want them to decontaminate their whole aquariums? It was, a, it was a really quite a crisis that unraveled really quickly, especially as we got more and more positives. Because again, we didn't know they were in almost every single U.S. state and Canadian province. So thankfully, we have tools to handle crises like these. And we use something called the Instant Command System, or ICS. So if you're not familiar with ICS, it is essentially a standardized system that is used to respond to a crisis from any size. You can use it for a forest fire impacting thousands of hectares, all the way to planning your next birthday party. And what's really cool about ICS is because it's so scalable, we can use it to respond no matter how big or small the crisis is. So a great example of this and what really inspired us to use the system in Canada was actually the uh, DFO Asian CARP team. So in Canada, we have the Asian carp team, and they're doing early detection work in the Great Lakes, looking for grass carp in particular, because the fish has not been established in Canada yet. When they find a fish, they have a whole series of uh, checks they go through, but they're going to respond to the early detection using ICS. They're going to stand up a team to go out and hopefully deal with the situation. Whenever you find a new AIS in the wild, the best thing you do is eradicate it before it comes established. So it makes absolute sense to use a system like this to respond to invasive species. You know, anyone that's worked on a new detection can attest how panicky and hectic these situations evolve into very quickly. 
Um, and using ICS not only helps you slow down, but it assigns folks key roles that they'll play in that response. So before the Moswell thing happened, you know, uh, my team was working on getting ICS training to the Western Canadian provinces, as well as our own staff. So we'd be ready in case a crisis happened. And of course, ironically, we finished this training like a few weeks before the Mossball thing really blew up. So it was really fresh in our minds. So that was awesome in that regard that we were really prepared. I, I really wish it never happened though. I would take that back. I, I would never do that again in a heartbeat if I could. But basically as the situation evolved in Canada and we saw uh, we saw zebra muscle eDNA positive showing up on Mossballs, we had the physical presence of these muscles on Mossballs, the Ottawa national DFO team decided to stand up a national response team. And because of my experience in working with Zebra muscles and my knowledge of kind of the situation in Western Canada, I was put on the command staff as the liaison officer. So without getting super nitty gritty into the ICS, my job was to communicate with supporting agencies and provinces, as well as NGOs, industry groups, and other folks as the situation unfolded. So I got to talk to some uh, really interesting people on the like online distributor side of things, try to explain the problem, how they help us solve it. And from there, you know, making sure that the incident commander was aware of what's happening with Western Canadian provinces, where we're finding new detections, what's going on, you know, laying messages back and forth, and just being like essentially a cog in the wheel. Because the goal of any incident command response team is to stabilize the situation. What's unique about the Mossball situation, of course, is that once stabilized, we had to start doing things like additional early detection. So is this going to happen again is a question we we asked ourselves and the provinces were asking, you know, what happened? What was the breakdown here? Why are there muscles literally in nine provinces in one territory? So being part of, of that command team was really cool. We, we worked uh, a lot of extra hours, which is unfortunate. A lot of takeout food. And I've got I've got stains on my carpet from eating at my desk way too often. So. So was there any detection of zebra mussels that had like been found in natural waterways from the moss balls or was that part of the response? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So because of how uh, ubiquitous these products were, you know, a lot of the early detection efforts that were happening beforehand in provinces and territories are going to continue to carry on. Basically, mm -hmm. we gave decontamination instructions to people that had these things. But, you know, because we aren't able to track down every single sale of these products, mm -hmm. it's very difficult to know what their percussions are going to be. But right. yeah, since 2021, we haven't had uh, any new infestations that are coming in places we didn't expect. So inside Canada, of course, you know, we have zebra mussels in the Red River Basin, Lake Winnipeg, and those are following that natural dispersal pattern, moving from Lake Winnipeg slowly further north, you know, making it to the Arctic Ocean eventually in Hudson's Bay. But other than that, you know, we haven't seen any new infestations that we're aware of, of mussels. But of course, like any of these species, you got to look for it. And um, yeah, it's, it's a difficult question to answer, unfortunately, but uh, that's yeah. what keeps you up at night. So thank you for reminding me. <laughs> Great. Okay, well, I guess this is also somewhat related based on that being maybe not the most fun experience that you've had as part of this job. So <laughs> I was curious what your favorite and least favorite parts about working in the, the aquatic invasive species realm are. Yeah, so I already mentioned passionate people, uh, and that includes working with, you know, my my team. I'm on Pat Lee right now, because I guess not my team, but uh, everyone working on AIS and in, in DFO, really passionate people. They love what they're doing. They recognize the challenges that this job face, why it's so important. And that's true for the provinces as well. So I get to work with lots of Western Canadian provinces and their staff and the NGOs working in this field. You know, everyone has the knowledge, has the passion. They have that common goal. 
we really feel like we're working together, even though we're sometimes in different, uh, you know, governments and ministries and all that fun stuff. But when it comes to, you know, protecting biodiversity and reducing the socioeconomic impacts of invasive species on fisheries, it's going to be a good time. You know, everyone's everyone's here with the with that same kind of end, end goal in sight. Uh, and yeah, my least favorite part of the job is definitely how hard reaching that goal actually is, you know. Yeah. I work 40 hours a week normally, but when you're sleeping, those AS are spreading. They're trying their best, right? Like yeah. nature doesn't sleep. And whether they're trying to hitchhike, hitchhike on a boat or uh, testing out the water chemistry in a lake that maybe it shouldn't theoretically survive in, you know, stopping the spread of invasive species requires every resource that we can invest in it. And for hit, hit that vision, hit that goal of no spread, no new invaded water bodies, no impact ecosystems. Yeah, that's going to be really difficult to achieve. When I think about biodiversity, you've kind of got that coin you can flip. On one side, you've got things like species at risk. On the other side, you've got invasive species. With species at risk and endangered species, you know, it's sometimes really positive. You're working on recovering a species. You're trying to prevent it from becoming extinct. With invasive species, it's often, you know, kind of very negative because it's like, okay, where are the invasions this year? Where do we need new management? Where do we need new early detection? And that can be a little disheartening sometimes. So that's why it's so good to have a team of folks who are on the same page, supporting each other, and everyone recognizes kind of how hard it can be to work in this field. And uh, having that camaraderie is really good and really key to everyone working together effectively on a very difficult task. Awesome. Is there anything else you want to say about your job or career before we move into our fisheries podcast questions? I would just say that, yeah, I think, you know, I, I don't know what it's like in the United States side of things when it comes to that kind of divide between fishery science and fisheries management. I love working in management. If you love regulations and applying them and trying to work with industry groups, it can be really rewarding to see that. And like being able to take that science and use it is really cool and really key to being an effective manager. You know, one of the cool things about my job is I get to read a lot of neat stuff whether it's new policy, whether it's new science being produced in literature by DFO, and trying to take that and try to make sure our management techniques are up to date with the science is really cool and really key to being effective in this kind of role. Cool. So we're going to switch gears a little bit since you are coming in as one of the new co-hosts of the Fisheries Podcast. And so I was yeah. what drew you to volunteering as a co-host of the show? Yeah, so I think during the pandemic, a lot of people started listening to a lot of new podcasts, and this is one of them for me. So long-time listener, first-time caller. Call for host went out. I thought this would be a really cool way to volunteer and talk to some folks. I love the show. I love hearing what's going on in the world. You know, there's so much going on in the fishery science world, the fisheries management world. It's hard to stay up to date. It's almost impossible. And things like the fisheries podcast can help me get a little bit of information about what's happening all over the place. You know, like I almost never touch the marine environment. And so when a marine show pops up, I'm always like, oh my God, like what is, what's happening there? That's so cool. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, try to think about how those ideas can cross pollinate into like the freshwater world or my work is something that I, I like to think about. So I'm hoping that as one of the new podcast hosts, I'm able to help someone else with that and uh, help spread the good work, you know, of folks that are working, you know, I'm likely going to focus on people in, uh, in Canada, Western Canada specifically, which is kind of my backyard here. Um, lots of cool work being done and I can't wait to hopefully share with the listenership. Awesome. You may have just answered this, but I'll ask it just to double check. Is there anything you're most excited about or like a topic or person you're most excited to interview? I'm hopefully got some people lined up already. And I, in case in case it falls through, I will mention them. But uh, no, for, for sure, right? I, I think one of the, the really cool things happening in the fisheries field is this idea of native fish and their value, right? So 
I don't want to use like the, the T word. I mean, I'll use it, the trash fish or rough fish. But I think, you know, in the last like five, 10 years, not only the science, but like the observed value of these fish has been increasing. So that's really cool. And I'm hoping my first episode that will be coming out in March, we'll, uh, we'll be talking about some of the work being done on the, the, the native fish side of things. Very cool. And you will have a little bit of a different episode schedule than the rest of us hosts, which people will hear typically every month. Can you talk about when people should expect to hear episodes? Yeah, it turns out some months have five weeks, which is weird yeah. to say, but uh, <laughs> that's the reality of our, our current current calendar system. It's not perfect, but uh, I'm going to be the, the fifth wheel here, I guess. And so every fifth week, you're going to hear podcasts from myself and one of my guests. So that's going to be definitely more infrequent than my other guests, which is okay with me because I have a, I have a little baby at home now. So <laughs> when I told my wife I was signing up to host a podcast, she just kind of looked at me and was like, all right, sure. <laughs> that sounds very reasonable, Brandon. Good luck. Good. Oh, I didn't add this as a question when I sent you my list, but I usually like to ask it, what hobbies and interests do you have outside of science and now podcasting? <laughs> Yeah, so beyond, you know, fishing, hunting, outdoor stuff, uh, which I think a lot of folks that work in this field, you, you pretty much, it's a guarantee you're doing one of those things. I'm really into role-playing games. So, you know, things like Dungeons and Dragons, Wrath and Glory, all those fun games where you get to sit down and pretend to be someone else for a while can be a lot of fun. Love video games as well. And, you know, when I, when I think about kind of my career, I blame video games for getting me into to GIS. You know, I, I love maps. Maps tell a story about the world. And when your world doesn't actually exist, the map is even more helpful. You know, like if you think about Lord of the Rings, when you think about how far Frodo and the boys went, and then you look at the map that uh, Tolkien put in the book, you're like, wow, that is really far. And the world just comes alive. So I, I love I love maps and geospatial information because it, it can show you things that you didn't think about until it's there on the map. You see the terrain, you see the landforms, the features, you start thinking about things like what could live there. And that's really cool to me. So... Love me a good map in a video game. Awesome. Well, Brendan, we have completed what we call the tough part of the interview and are down to our final five questions, which is a group of questions we ask each of the guests to come on the show. First one is, what is your favorite fish? See, these questions are actually higher than the previous ones. I agree. That's my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Favorite fish. This one's actually easy for me. So again, I'm from Southern Ontario originally, and you can catch channel catfish in Southern Ontario. But they are nothing like the channel catfish we have here in Manitoba. Uh, when I first moved here, I knew I had to catch one of these absolute broods in the Red River. We have an amazing world-class cat fishery that produces massive fish. Folks drive and fly in from all over to check it out. Beyond their angling value, they're just incredibly charismatic. You know, you can't pick up one of these fellows, whether they're big or small, and think like this is a this is something I don't want to put down. You know, they're they're absolutely adorable. The older ones, especially on the Red River, they're absolutely battle scarred, whether it's from, you know, being caught like a dozen times. They're such hardy fish as everyone knows. And of course, they're considered invasive in some places too. So there you go. Showing that even our, our native fish can sometimes cause problems in places they shouldn't be. But uh, yeah, channel cats, absolutely love them. Check them out. Uh, if you've looked at the podcast episode picture, that's me holding one. That was not the biggest one we caught that day, but it's the biggest <laughs> one I caught. So here we are. Awesome. I mean, I guess on the point of all, all fish and species are native somewhere. And so when they're not outside of the native true. ranges. <laughs> Everyone causes problems when they leave home. They have right. to stay home with their parents forever. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. What's your favorite memory from your career so far? Yeah, so that one, that one was hard, but I decided to pick the watercraft inspection pilot 
that we launched in 2022. So this is a really big effort. You know, watercraft inspection programs aren't a new thing in Western Canada or the U.S., but it's the first one that DFO put together. And we ended up working with the Canada Border Services Agency, as well as our fisheries officers to really get this project rolling and hired a bunch of summer students and staff. And from there, we ended up doing over 600 inspections. And we found that you know only 69% were compliant with our regulations and 22% of watercraft required a decontamination on site. And two watercraft were actually denied entry for carrying invasive species. So when we first started this project, it started as like a PowerPoint of, and an Excel spreadsheet and how many staff do we hire? Where are they going to stay? What do we need to buy? How expensive is the decontamination equipment? From there, how are we going to collect the data, analyze the data? And from that, we built into a really successful project that has been renewed for an additional year and we're running again next year as well. So that's really cool. And so just seeing it start from an idea that was pushed by myself and my team up and getting it approved and then doing the data collection, then doing the data analysis, then writing the report and getting such positive feedback from provincial partners, from federal partners, from DFO Science. It just felt really, really good to see that project from start to end. And knowing that we also help protect, you know, Canada's freshwater systems. That's the most important thing to me and something we definitely were able to instill in all the summer students we hired. You know, by the end, I had fully converted them into preaching the good word around this species management. So huge W. Awesome. Next is what is your dream job and or location? See, I I didn't have a dream. I'm an I'm 35 years old almost. I don't have dreams anymore. No, it's uh, a, <laughs> I, I think, I think for me, you know, I, I love my job. I love working environmental regulation. I'd love to work in a position where I have more influence on policy and most importantly, like empowering more people with additional resources to get the job done. I really sold myself and why I love working with AIS, preparing for this episode and thinking about these questions. That said though, I'd love to see more of Canada as well. You know, I've had the, the privilege of visiting almost every single province and there's nowhere I wouldn't want to live. That said, though, some of those provinces have marine environments, which I am not familiar with, and scare me incredibly. So <laughs> I think I'll stay inland for the next little while and uh, see where that takes me. Yeah, great. All right. If money was not an issue, what is one project you would like to work on? I have a management and a science one. Is that okay? That's yeah. two. I apologize. That's okay. great. Yeah. So on the, on the AIS management side of things, so I would love to see more decontamination stations staffed all over the place, wherever you can launch a boat. You know, we know how these invasive species spread. Preventing it, however, requires a lot of work and effort. And it's incredibly challenging to get all the public to buy in. And when you have things like decon stations and staff decon stations, I think that really helps people do the right thing, enable them to actually stop, get their boat deconned. And that would absolutely help prevent spread of AIS in Canada. I don't need one at every single boat launch. That'd probably be too many, but definitely more than we have now would be would be great. And I think Anyone that works in the field can understand, you know, how, how hard it is to work with the resources you have available. You know, everyone is working with the budgets they have and everyone wishes there was a couple extra zeros on there, but them's the breaks. You know, on the science side of things, though, I would, I'd really love to spend some time to capture and plot and analyze all of the boats moving inside Canada, either from the U.S. or even that intra-Canadian traffic. When we looked at our data spatially, we realized how interesting and unique the plotting patterning of folks' destinations were. And it's likely that because it is, you know, it's geographic information, every single different port of entry inside Canada is going to have a different kind of signature of where people are coming from, where they're going. So if we really want to get the full picture of the potential spread of AIS inside Canada from the U.S., we need a ton more data. You know, I, I need data from every single port of entry. And 
there's a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And so I need a lot of money to get that done. So that's what I would love to get done. Awesome. All right. Our last question is if there's one pointer principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? Yeah. So I think that our aquatic environments and natural world writ large are a shared resource and a shared responsibility. If everyone doesn't do their part, you know, whether that's clean drain drying to prevent AIS spread, respecting the fishing rigs, respecting their catches and making sure that they're releasing fish properly, that they do capture, you know, that's how we ensure there's something here for the next generation. And until I get that programmed everyone's head though, I'm thankful there's so many amazing people working in this field in the US and Canada. And uh, I, I, I think back to a, a good quote from kind of one of the, the first conservationists in America, Teddy Roosevelt, who said, the wildlife and its habitat cannot speak. So we must and we will. And to me, that's a really powerful statement and has driven wildlife management in the US and Canada for the last, you know, hundred or so years. And I'd love for people to understand why we think it's important and convince them of that. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast and coming on as a co-host. If people want to find out more information about you or your work or just get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, I'm still on Pat Leaf, so don't email don't me on my work. But I'm on LinkedIn, Brennan Spearin. I'm on the Twitter, also Brennan Spearin. And happy to chat about AIS or anything else anytime. And yeah, if you do contact me, though, I will not leave you alone until you ask me to stop. So be warned. <laughs> Great. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to get a hold of me or the podcast, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod or send us an email to feedback at fisheriespodcast.com. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. Don't forget you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Katie Heinley. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, our aquatic resources in the natural world are a shared resource and shared responsibility.